This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer. Serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Cape Fear Unearthed, a new podcast from Star News Media. My name is Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter for the Star News here in Wilmington, North Carolina, where you may have seen my byline on coverage of the city and the local film and television industry. But for this podcast, I'm going to be stepping away from those beats, and I'm going to join you as a fan of the region's colorful past. I want to start out this new adventure by asking you to take a journey with me. It's not one that's going to get you any more steps on your Fitbit, or one that will even require you to get out of your car or wherever you may be listening to this. Whether you're a history buff or someone who casually finds fascination in stories of the past, I'm inviting you to grab a shovel and dig with me into the area's rich history of persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures, all of which have contributed to the lore of the Cape Fear region. At the top of each episode, I'm going to tell you one of these stories as it has been passed down through history and told through legend, and then I'm going to bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to discuss what kind of impact this story may have had on the region and whether or not history can be trusted. As the season progresses, I'm also going to be inviting you to join the conversation as well and offer your suggestion for topics that could be featured on future episodes. Every city, town, and region has its own wealth of stories to tell, and we here at the Star News are so excited to begin exploring southeastern North Carolina stories with you. So without further ado, let's unearth more about where we live with the fateful tale of Samuel Jocelyn, the man who was buried alive. Barely legible on the graves of the old St. James Church Cemetery in downtown Wilmington are names like Nathaniel Howie, Mary Bleakley, Abraham Golden, Granger Wright, and Winslow Wilkings. They are among the few who haven't had their names, their stories, brushed away by the cruelty of time and mother nature on their headstone, some of which date back to the 1700s. One name you won't find among the cemetery's blackened molding stones is Samuel Jocelyn, whose life, or rather afterlife, has made him the cemetery's most infamous resident. The story of Samuel's tragic death, however, is not simply his own. It is interminably tied to Alexander Hostler, his best friend. Anyone who knew the two men when they were young boys in Wilmington at the turn of the century and into the first decade of the 1800s would likely not be surprised to see them linked forever by history. They were inseparable as children, then as teenagers, and finally as young adults. One's name was rarely spoken without the other in the same breath. The two men reveled in having impassioned conversations about the psychological and metaphysical elements of life. It was well into one of those conversations that Samuel and Alexander found themselves at the very beginning of 1810. The topic drew jeers and laughter from their assembled friends, but to them it was fascinating. The story on the table was whether or not someone could return after death and be seen by someone still among the living. By the end of the conversation, the two had made a pact. The first one of them to die would return to speak to the other if it was possible. The two men shook on it. 
not knowing the promise would come to pass far sooner than either expected. Legend varies on why Samuel rode off on his own, on horseback, that fateful day just a few months later in the spring of 1810. Whatever sent him heading out of town, the trip ended with a search party after Samuel failed to return home. Some say he was found lying beneath the branches of an old oak tree, while others recall him found in Holly Shelter Swamp. Nevertheless, he was brought back into town where he was attended to as much as possible by physicians, only to die days later after never regaining consciousness. Alexander was inconsolable. He refused comfort and stayed in his room for days after Samuel was buried in St. James Cemetery. It was in that room, late one night, that legend says the pair's pact came true. Out of nowhere, Samuel appeared to Alexander and posed a question. How could you let me be buried when I was not dead, Samuel asked. Alexander protested to his friend that he was in fact dead when he was buried, but Samuel was not to be convinced. He begged Alexander to open his casket and see that he was no longer in the same position in which he was buried, and then he vanished. Although shaken by the lifelike apparition, Alexander attributed it to grief and did nothing of what Samuel asked. The next night, Samuel returned with an even more fervent plea. Again, Alexander did nothing. Finally, after a third straight night of visits, he gathered a conspirator and Samuel's parents' permission and dug up his friend under the cloak of midnight. When he opened the coffin, he was devastated by what he found. Samuel was lying face down. Sometime after burial, it is said Samuel must have regained consciousness, at least long enough to dislodge one side of his coffin in a desperate struggle for freedom. Instead, he suffocated within minutes. Written records suggest a fall from his horse sent Samuel into a comatose state that was believed to be death at the time. Or maybe it was the chill of the night in the swamp water that froze his body on the brink of death, only to be brought back days later. Whatever the cause, Samuel's story was shared far and wide, thanks in large part to Colonel James G. Burr, who boasted of the shocking details in a lecture at Thalian Hall in 1890. He claims his mother heard it directly from Alexander some years prior. Whether you believe in ghosts or apparitions will likely affect your acceptance of Samuel and Alexander's story. But anyone with a best friend can tell you, the bonds of friendship can bound people so tightly even time and distance can't tear them apart. For Samuel Jocelyn and Alexander Hostler, Maybe even death couldn't sever their bond. Joining me now is Chris E. Fonville Jr., an author and professor emeritus in the Department of History at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and a Wilmington native. He retired last month. Thank you so much for joining me, Chris, and congratulations on your retirement. Well, thank you, Hunter. It's a pleasure to be here. I've read the story of Samuel Jocelyn for our listeners. So what can you tell me about Samuel's life that doesn't involve Alexander, kind of leading up to their friendship and, and, and his eventual death. Well, unfortunately, Hunter, we don't know a lot of details about his life, and he died as a young man. He was only 25 years old. Mm-hmm. What I discovered uh, in researching the article is that he was the son of Samuel R. Jocelyn Sr., uh, who was a Yale-educated lawyer who moved to Wilmington in 1790 with his wife and young family. Uh, Samuel Jocelyn Jr., who is the topic of our conversation Mm -hmm. today, was about five years old at the time. Um, I was curious what might have attracted 
the Jocelyn family to Wilmington, and I learned that Amaziah Jocelyn, who would have been Samuel Jocelyn Jr.'s grandfather, Mm -hmm. was a sea captain who had moved to Wilmington in the late 1700s. I think he was here by 1788. And he uh, was a commission merchant and auctioneer who dealt in the sale of ships and boats and cargoes and even slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I think because he had been a sea captain, he uh, traded at Wilmington and fell in love with the place. Charming, beautiful, economic opportunity. So he moved here and then uh, was followed by his son, Samuel Jocelyn Sr. Okay. And the family. What he also was married, correct? Did you find evidence that he was married? Samuel Jocelyn Jr. Yes. He, he was married about nine months at the time that he okay. died under mysterious circumstances, yeah. March of 18, uh, 1810. He was married to Mary uh, Ann Sampson, uh, whose father, Michael Sampson, was a lawyer from Sampson County. And uh, Samuel Jocelyn Sr., mm-hmm. who uh, very quickly after he established himself in Wilmington, Gained a reputation as one of the state's finest equity lawyers. Okay. Uh, in fact, eventually the Bank of Cape Fear appointed him uh, one of their directors. But he represented Michael Sampson uh, in the sale of some land in, uh, in the sale of some land in the western part of New Hanover County. So they established a business relationship, and I suspect that through that relationship, uh, Samuel Jocelyn Jr became familiar with the family, mm-hmm. met Mary Ann Sampson, and then they married in June of 1809. Oh, wow. So uh, not even a year before, before he died. Uh, they were married June yeah. 27th, and he died in mid-March of yeah. 1810. So what's that? Nine yeah, months? Yeah, nine March, months. April, May, June, nine months. Yeah, it wasn't a, it it wasn't wasn't a long, long marriage. Uh, uh, you know, it sounds like he lived a, a fairly privileged life here in Wilmington. You know, it sounds like his father was pretty successful moving to town. Uh, um, his, his grandfather ran a very uh, successful commission merchant business. In fact, Samuel Jocelyn Jr. went into business with his grandfather mm-hmm. when he was just a teenager. And it was said that he was a very uh, outstanding, well-respected young man. His grandfather died in 1805. So Samuel would have only been about 20 years old at the time and mm-hmm. took over the business. Wow. So he had a lot of business acumen, a lot of potential, and uh, was apparently very successful in his own right. So his, you know, his story isn't just solely tied with Alexander, you know, now that, you know, after no, death. No, and, and and how did these young men become friends? Mm-hmm. Um, Hostler was the co-owner in a wharf with Richard Bradley, a Bradley Creek mm-hmm. friend, fame, okay. by the way. Yeah. And it may have been that th- 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 there was some kind of business connection between the two of them. But, okay. you know, Wilmington was a small town at the turn of mm-hmm. the 19th century. Um, there were only about 2,000 people. Yeah. So everyone would have known everyone, yeah. like in most small towns. It'd be hard not to know each other. Oh, absolutely. So they became friends, but there was a, a whole group of friends. Yeah. How these young men came to make this strange sort of paranormal pact mm-hmm. um, um, we don't know, but it's an interesting part of the story. It definitely, it definitely adds a, a foreboding element to it once you once you get into it. The story is, of course, that they uh, made a pact with each other, and perhaps with some of their friends too. Yeah. That if one of them died, 
that they would attempt to make contact with them from the other side, Mm -hmm. you know, with hope that there was another side. Yes. Right. What happens to your life energy? What happens Mm -hmm. to your soul when you die? Uh, Is there a heaven? So uh, once you get to the other side, whoever goes first, make contact with, you know, your friends on this side. Yeah. I I don't know how that pack got started. I mean, they might have just been interested in, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, there was a devastating fire in Wilmington in 1806 that destroyed much of uh, the downtown area of of Wilmington, particularly to Market and Princess and all the way down to the Kafir River. And I just wondered if they thought, you know, that like devastating fires, that life, too, is very fragile and can be taken away very, very quickly. And what happens to the ashes of one's life after all is said and done? Absolutely. You know, the ways in which we kind of look at life and, you know, ask questions of ourselves when big events happen in our life, that very well could have been something that kind of was the impetus for this. Sure. Now, you know, Samuel's story was, you know, is so so much defined by his his death or, or really what happened after his death. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but is his story one of the only confirmed cases of someone being buried alive because there is that evidence of him being dug up? Well, the only confirmed case that I'm familiar with mm-hmm. in, in Wilmington, okay. at least. But no, it would not have been unusual. For, I mean, embalmment was a very expensive mm-hmm. process. Most people were um, stripped and then wrapped into a shroud and put into the earth. You were fortunate if you got a casket. Okay. And, of course, we were talking off air that um, in some cases, um, undertakers, uh, if there was some questions some doubt about uh the uh whether or not someone was actually dead Mm -hmm. they would uh, put a string inside the casket they they wouldn't cover the grave they would just lower the casket into the four foot deep grave put a string to the inside of the casket with a bell top side so that if the person awoke Mm -hmm. um they could be saved by the bell Mm -hmm. so um you know that happened but i can't quantify yeah absolutely and you know him you know samuel's story here does kind of tap into that fear of of being buried alive you know absolutely definitely you know whatever happened obviously there is a a little bit of a mystery of of what happened to samuel that that led to him being declared dead um but that does tap into that fear of being buried alive and back then it was far more likely or at least there was a better chance that you could actually be in that situation yeah today when you're dead you're dead yeah they make sure they definitely make sure (laughs) or i hope they make sure uh but yeah this was i think that that's what fascinates people about this that this was even possible you know that someone could be buried alive accidentally just because of the the medical advancements of the time being able to you know well that's one of the questions that i was i was interested in yeah you know number one you know was there a samuel jocelyn Mm -hmm. uh did he die under mysterious or unusual circumstances and was it at all possible that he could have been buried alive and what i discovered after many 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 hours of research was uh, yes, yeah. that uh, there was a Samuel Jocelyn Jr. He did die under mysterious circumstances. And yes, it is possible that he was buried alive because of the circumstances under which his body was found. So you did some pretty extensive research for an article you wrote last fall um, for a local magazine. Tell me kind of what sources you found to kind of substantiate some of the, uh, the findings that you found about Samuel. Sure. Well, I looked at newspapers, mm-hmm. uh, looked at census records, and very important source was the diary of 
of Joseph Gardner Swift, because this was a primary source document that changed everything. I also looked at secondary sources like Lewis T. Moore's Stories Old and New of the Lower mm-hmm. K. Fear, and Alfred Moore Waddell's History of New Hanover County, that uh, you know were the first to report the story in the 20th century. But these are secondary sources. At Joseph Gardner relayed the legend. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They relayed the legend. But Joseph Gardner Swift, first graduate of the United States Military Academy, uh, he was an engineer. His first duty station was the Lower K. Fear. So this is a man of great credibility and he was a member of the search party that found Samuel Jocelyn Jr.'s body. I was reading his journal one afternoon because as long as he spent here in the Lower Cape Fear, there's all kinds of really interesting information about the engineering projects he was involved in. But there were two sentences from the journal from March of 1810. March 18th, in company with many gentlemen from Wilmington in search for the son of our good friend Samuel R. Jocelyn, we found his body in Holly Shelter Swamp. It was frozen to death in four inches of water. And that was it. Yeah. But what it told me was that uh, he had gone missing in mid-March of 1810. Mm-hmm. Oh, the other thing was that they found him on the second day of looking. So he'd gone missing in mid-March. The volunteer search party must have known approximately where to look for him. Holly Shelter Swamp is 64,000 acres of Pocosin, thick swamp land. So how would they know to search there unless they knew about where he had gone missing? Somewhere he might have gone before. Right. So how did he end up in Holly Shelter Swamp? As it turns out, his wife's father, Michael mm-hmm. Sampson, owned an 850-acre corn and stock plantation, whatever corn is. I know what corn is, but I'm not sure what it means livestock, I guess. He owned an 850-acre plantation in Holly Shelter Swamp. So I suspect that Samuel and Marianne had gone up to her father's property for Mm -hmm. A weekend, maybe a delayed honeymoon. Who knows? They were up there. One story uh, claims that they had a spat. He got on horseback, rode away from the house. Maybe he just went out exploring, got lost. That's a lot um, of swamp to explore. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big swamp. It fell off his horse, was knocked unconscious. But when he did not return to the house, then either Mary Ann uh, Samuel Jocelyn mm-hmm. or her father put the word out yes. that the son of one of the most respected equity lawyers in the state was missing. So it would not take long for a large volunteer party, search party, to be organized. And they knew approximately where to look. And sure enough, on the second day of searching, they found him. So he was not killed. As the ghost tours say, at Fourth and Market Streets, he w- he was killed in Holly Shelter Swamp, thirty five miles north of Wilmington. And that that diary of of, of Gardner's diary, yeah, uh, Joseph Gardner uh, Swift, Joseph Gardner Swift, that is probably as good an eyewitness account of that search party as you're going to get. He was uh, there <laughs> two hundred years later. So he was there. Yeah. He was with the party that found the body. Absolutely. That's as good a source as you're going to get. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm inclined to trust him on that one. Absolutely. Uh, that's it for the first episode of cape fear unearthed and the story of samuel jocelyn thank you so much for joining me check back next thursday for a new episode where we will explore another tale from the history books until then we want to hear from you the listener about what story you think we should cover on a future episode be sure to email us your favorite local tale 
to capefearunearthed at gmail.com. The final episode this season is going to be a reader-submitted topic, and it could be yours. Also, be sure to share your thoughts on this week's episode on Twitter with the hashtag CFUnearthed. You can also join our Facebook group, where I will be posting extra content like pictures pertaining to each week's episode and more as the season progresses. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. Finally, you can find a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes. That's where you will also find a link to Chris E. Fonville Jr.'s work on Samuel Jocelyn. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at StarNewsOnline.com and on Twitter at Hunter Ingram SN. Until next week, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you. <laughs> <laughs>